please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 5. I will this morning be considering uh, verses 18 to 24. We don't normally, we go verse by, you know, through books and verse by verse expositionally, but we don't generally um, look at only six or seven verses. We tend to look at bigger sections, but in this particular passage here, as, as, I was sing, as we were singing that last hymn, I need thee every hour most holy one, I was reminded of that cry that we give to God, to the, to the holy God, and how desperately we really do need him, not only for the trials and tribulations of life, but really to understand his truth and to know him better as a result. We can come before God's word and we can open it up, and especially in a passage like this this, this morning, and we can ask him for his grace, and we need that grace to help us understand it. But at the end of the day, the passage that we're looking at this morning is so deep, and it is so rich with divine truth about the nature of God that I think all of us here, in some sense, should feel, and I know I do, a sense of inadequacy and smallness. Because to understand the nature of God and the Holy One, uh, this kind of passage reminds us just how finite and small we really are in our understanding and how much we really do need him. Because in this passage, as we'll read it, Christ is speaking of something, of a divine truth that we really have a hard time comprehending. And he's talking about the triune nature of God, the, the relationship between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Father. And we know the Holy Spirit is also the third person of the Trinity, but how that works and how that relationship takes place, we will never really truly understand because we're not God and we're not divine. But Jesus here does help us to understand something about his nature and his equality with the Father as one God, yet distinct. So here is how Christ puts it in John chapter 5, verse 18 to 24. Let me just read those verses, and then we will seek to dive into these verses a bit more to understand why these things are being said and what John intends for us to know and learn by them. So let's hear the word of the Lord. We'll actually pick up in, I'll read from verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will." The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your, for your teaching and your testimony regarding your equality with God. It is hard for us to grasp that, and so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us, as small as we are and as finite as we are in our understanding and in our comprehension, help us, Holy Spirit, we pray, to understand and to know the Almighty God a bit better this morning that we might learn of the one that we trust and in the one in whom we have placed our hope, might learn to love you and serve you and obey you more faithfully. Help us to see Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So why is Jesus saying this to them? And you really need to kind of understand a bit where we've already been in verses 1 to 17, where we noted last week how the hostility toward Jesus was increasing with the healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda. And John told us how Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath day. He specifically mentioned it was on the Sabbath day, and that this is why the Jews were persecuting him. We just read that. And this dispute between Jesus and the Jewish authorities over the Sabbath day was actually so sharp, not only here in John, but also in the other Gospels, um, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, that it actually aroused a desire within the Jewish authorities and the people in general, a desire to destroy Jesus. That's the word that Mark uses in Mark 2 and in Matthew 12. Uh, You'll remember a man with a withered hand is healed. Jesus had just prior to that said he was Lord of the Sabbath. And so they're watching him when this withered man with a withered hand comes and they're watching him to see if he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath day. And so when he did choose to heal the man, Mark says, they met together to discuss how to destroy Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. Of course, Jesus had not violated the Sabbath in any way. What he had violated was their opinion of the Sabbath and the additional laws that they had created around the Sabbath so that they could obey the Sabbath. You understand, like, God did give a Sabbath command. Jesus did not violate it, but what he violated was their opinion and interpretation of the Sabbath, all of the laws that they had created. And that really is the heart of man when their religion and their pursuit of righteousness by works of the law is challenged or nullified, this is the reaction of man. They they hate people and truth, and Jesus specifically, because Jesus, when he comes onto the scene and he comes into the world, his presence and his truth nullifies all of what we create as truths and religion for ourselves. You understand that? His presence says, and his word says, he is the way, the truth, and the life, which by default means whatever we have created for ourselves as the way, the truth, and the life is nullified. It means you're wrong, and Jesus is true. And so these people and their religion, their hearts were captivated, captivated by their own perceived righteousness. 
Their hearts were captivated by the laws and the standards that they had created for themselves so that if they should obey these laws, they could then praise themselves for obeying the rules and the laws and believe themselves then to be justified before God based on them. And so they were very intoxicated with themselves and their own self-righteousness because they believed that by keeping this Sabbath command, according to their opinion, that God was pleased with them. But in reality, this intoxication that they had with the law and the God that they had formed in their mind was nothing but an idol, and it was an empty pursuit. So these Jewish leaders, they saw that Jesus was making it seem to them like their approach to God was an empty striving. Jesus was a danger to their way of life, to their religion. That's how they saw it, at least, and it enraged them. Now, what is interesting in the passage is that, and it's a bit different than the other accounts involving the Sabbath, is that Jesus doesn't argue here, you'll notice, as he might have. He doesn't argue with them that their interpretation of the Sabbath is incorrect. It's not what he does here in this passage. He could have argued that what was prohibited for man on the Sabbath in the Old Testament really had reference to work that was normally done the other six days of the week. That's what the Sabbath commandment prohibited. You, you shall not do those ordinary works that you always do for life and for provisions and so on on the Sabbath day that you do these six days of the week but you are to set this day aside unto the Lord. And he could have argued that a man who was an invalid for 38 years and was healed, and then who carried his mat home was not a violation of the Sabbath. But he doesn't even argue that at all. Some also see Jesus in this passage maybe as trying to be a rebel rouser or like this cultural revolutionist. That Jesus here violates the Sabbath, and this was his way of calling them to repentance and showing that their understanding of the Sabbath was legalistic. And in some sense, by doing the healing on the Sabbath, he is showing them that they're wrong in their understanding of this law. But I don't think that was Jesus' motivation primarily for healing on the Sabbath. He wasn't deliberately rebelling against their laws to stick it to them, so to speak. I think Jesus was motivated to do what he did on the Sabbath day, and John will tell us this, out of love and compassion and mercy, Jesus healed on the Sabbath day because he was doing what he had always been doing from the beginning of creation. In other words, it didn't matter that it was to Jesus that it was on the Sabbath day. You understand? Jesus was doing what he was always doing from before the creation, from after the creation of the world. He saw a man who was sick and an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus has mercy and compassion on this man, and he heals him, and it happens to be the Sabbath day. But Jesus says to them, when they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, Jesus is saying that God never stopped working after his initial work of creation, and neither did I. What is more, you'll see Jesus here doesn't refer to God when he says, he doesn't say our Father as if to include them in this relationship between him and the Father, but he is calling God his own Father. He says, my Father is working until now, not our Father, my Father, and so am I. 
And so it seems to me that Christ intended by this that they should understand that God was his father in a peculiar sense, and he distinguishes himself from the ordinary rank of other men. He makes himself equal to God when he claims for himself the continuation of his work from the creation of the world. And they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was, in fact, saying that whatever justifies God's continuous work from creation on also justifies his. Just as God was always upholding, sustaining, showing grace and mercy to all of his creation after he creates it in six days, and even into the seventh day he's showing this mercy, which is necessary for the world to exist, so Jesus is doing what he had always done, showing grace and kindness to the world. That's quite a claim, isn't it? Who could claim such a thing? Who could claim such a truth before people to say that I am equal with God? To say that when the world was created, just as God has been working from the creation of the world onward, Jesus before them says, so have I been. That's why he healed this man, and it happened to be the Sabbath. And so you can see why before the world, and especially these Jewish authorities, this really bothered them. Maybe it bothers you this morning. Maybe the claim that Jesus makes regarding himself, that he is God, maybe it bothers you. Maybe you think, this is unbelievable. I can't accept this truth and this claim of Jesus. I like everything else. Jesus says, but for Jesus to say he's God, I can't accept that. Neither could these Jews. If the Jews had been convinced of anything by their exile, Isaiah mentions it in Isaiah 40, it was that idolatry was always wrong and that God was other holy other. Isaiah made the point about the futility of idolatry in Isaiah 40, 18, when he asks, after talking about the futility of idolatry, he says, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? And the Holy One himself responds in verse 25 of Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him. You see, what Isaiah is writing about here is, who in the world can be compared to God? Who can be like God? And the answer is what? No one. No one can be compared to God. No one can be God except for who? God. That's it. God is God. Man is man. And nobody can be compared to God because God is not like man in any way, shape, or form. He is wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, different. And those in the scriptures that claimed themselves to be like God faced terrible judgment. You might think of Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was a god. And what did Pharaoh face? Complete destruction by God. Another person that thought they were like God was 
King Nebuchadnezzar, no? And King Nebuchadnezzar, when he raises himself up to be like God, what does God do to King Nebuchadnezzar? He makes him graze in the grass like a cow. This is what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and he thinks he's a a bovine. And he goes into the field like an animal and he grazes in the grass. No, God pours his judgment out on those who think that they are God. Satan himself, an angel of light, lifted himself up in pride to be like God, and like lightning, he was gone. You know where the sad truth is? Adam and Eve bought the lie of Satan in the garden, didn't they? When Satan said, God knows that in the day that you eat of this tree, you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They desired to be like God, and so they disobeyed God, and they are cast out of the garden. And so, here is one standing before them, making that very claim. Jesus is claiming that he, within himself, has every prerogative and right as his father does. And so this hostility of the Jews toward Jesus was inflamed. The breaking of their Sabbath traditions was bad enough, but John goes on to say, you'll see there in verse 18, that they were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is Jesus's response to their objection to his healing. Why does Jesus respond in that way to them? I think in John's gospel, it it fits here. It fits because what John is presenting to us in his gospel is he is presenting to us, as he says in John chapter 20, verse 31, the whole purpose of his gospel, he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. You see, we as sinners can debate religion and religious laws all day long, can't we? We can argue and debate about what God wants us to do, how we can please God, what we do maybe to make us right before God. We're good at setting up standards, and and we try to keep them, and then we try to hold other people to those standards. We can debate all kinds of things like that, laws and regulations, religious exercises and disciplines and impose them on each other. And we are good at making Christianity about those things. We write books on them. The disciplines, spiritual disciplines of a man. The how to do better at prayer every day, how to read your Bible more. We're very good at talking about these things and putting laws before ourselves so that we can feel good about obeying those things and thinking that by doing these things that we are somehow okay before God. This can happen subtly. And Satan wants nothing more than for sinners to focus on those kinds of things just like he wanted Adam and Eve in the garden to do. And the reason he wants us to focus on those kinds of things and the letter of the law to set all of our hope and focus on that 
is because the more we focus on our keeping the law, the more we lose sight of who? Christ. The more we focus on trying to make ourselves more acceptable Christians, not that it's bad to pursue righteousness, but the more we focus on the law, the more we lose sight of the goodness and the grace that are found in Christ Jesus alone. Now, I, now God clearly says, be holy for I am holy. And we are to obey God's law. And we are to pursue righteousness. But not at the expense of taking our eyes off of Christ like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Their eyes were drawn away from God Almighty. And now here is God Almighty, the Son of God, who has come to save fallen and ruined sinners. And Jesus wants these religious leaders and authorities to see him and to see his goodness and his kindness. This is what he wants them to see, because there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so when it really comes down to it, who you believe Jesus to be matters eternally for you. The identity of Jesus as God incarnate is the cornerstone of our faith. And here his own people reject what he is revealing to them about himself. They reject that he has the authority and right within himself to heal on the Sabbath. And the question for you and I this morning is, what about you? After all that you have seen about Jesus so far in this gospel, have you come to terms with who Jesus Christ is? Or do you still see him as something less than God? Is Jesus Christ to you merely a man? Is Jesus Christ to you a religious lunatic or fanatic? Is Jesus Christ to you merely a moral teacher? Is Jesus Christ to you a transgressor and disruptor of your religion or your way of life? Is Jesus to you a political revolutionary and liberator? What conclusions do you draw about Jesus Christ? Are they conclusions that fit your worldview and suit your desires? What do you make of Christ Jesus as presented to you in the gospel? And here is the sad irony, is that in all of the explanations that people give about who they think Jesus is, you know what is always constantly overlooked? What Jesus says about himself. You understand, we can make all kinds of descriptions about Jesus, but at the end of the day, what did Jesus say about himself? And here he says he is equal with the Father, that he is God incarnate in human flesh. God incarnate. And Jesus never tried to hide it. He never tried to hide that truth. He spoke openly about his divinity all through the Gospels, and he displayed his divine nature repeatedly. 
He spoke of being in heaven before coming into this world. He spoke of coming from the Father. He claimed to have the ability to forgive sins. He claimed to have the authority of the destinies of men's souls. He claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. Jesus received worship, faith, and obedience to his word. Jesus called God's angels his angels, God's elect his elect, God's kingdom his kingdom. Jesus referred to himself as the Messiah. Jesus refers to himself as the great I am. He's never hid it, and he doesn't hide it from you and I this morning in this passage. He says he is one with the Father. And he says this to them and to you and I this morning. Why? So that you might believe. This is how Christ presents himself to you and I in his word. That you might believe in him. That you might be redeemed and saved. And so Jesus heals on the Sabbath so that they might see his glory and come to him in repentance. This is what Romans 2.4 says. Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so here, here's how Jesus explains it to them his equality with the Father. In verse 19, he explains how he is equal with the Father in his work. Verse 20, there is equality in God's love. Verse 21, Jesus presents himself with the authority and prerogative to give life to the dead and to pronounce final judgment for all people. And then in verse 23, Jesus says that the honor that is due his name is the same honor that is due the Father's, the Father. This is, this is Jesus saying these words about himself. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees his father doing. You know, Jesus is saying here, listen, he's saying, I am not an independent being who is himself fully God. As if to say there are two equal gods. God the Father is one God and God the Son, Jesus, is another equal God and that they work together side by side. Jesus is not saying that. He is not saying he is independent from God. Jesus is not claiming to be another equal God with God the Father, a competing God. Jesus is saying that he is not independent from the Father in his works. He, he's saying that he always acts not on his own initiative, but in perfect harmony with and in subordination to the Father's will. His work is one with the Father's. They are perfectly united in that work so that to see Christ's work is to see God work. To see Christ's work is to see God work. The only one who could conceivably do what the Father does must be as great as the Father, as divine as the Father. This is what is being claimed here by Jesus. Because they are one in being, one eternal God, to see Christ act is to see God act. So as it relates to the incarnation, God the Son incarnated, Jesus says, he obeys the Father. He does the Father's will. The Father initiates, sends, commands, commissions, grants, and the Son responds in obedience, and he does what the Father's will is. 
In that sense, Jesus is equal with the Father in his work. They are together in that. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 20a that it's not just that he is this agent of the Father sent, but he also points to the love of God that unifies him and his Father in heaven. The Son can do whatever the Father does, Jesus says, because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Love is presented here in the present tense. It's it's declaring that this love is ongoing and unbreakable between the Father and his Son. An eternal love that keeps them united in their work as the one true God. See, this, is, this just goes so deep, right? If it's true that the Father loves the Son, it's no less true that the Son loves the Father, and the Father shows his love for the Son in revealing to him all that he does, and the Son shows his love for the Father in his perfect obedience to the Father's will perfectly united in love such that all that was carried out in God's plan of redemption, this healing and all the other signs Jesus did, including his going to the cross, is carried out in God's perfect love between the Father and the Son. Jesus goes on to say that the Father will show the Son even greater things than those that have been done the healings of the crippled man, and so forth. He will show them even greater things than these so that they might marvel. And that leads Jesus to his third and fourth points. Jesus says about his equality with the Father, not only was he unified and equal in the Father's work and equal in the Father's love, but Jesus, the Son of God, is equal in his authority and prerogative to give life to the dead and to pronounce final judgment for all people. When you look at the Old Testament, one of the things you see about God presented in the Old Testament is that it is his authority alone to give life. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, it says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. 2 Kings 5, 7, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? And when the prophet Elijah and Elisha raised the dead in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, 32 to 37, When Elijah raises the widow's son, what does Elijah do when he goes to raise the widow's son? What does he do? Who does he call out to? He calls out to God. And in response, God heals his son. And when Elijah goes to raise the Shunammite's son, what does Elijah do? He comes and he prays to the Lord. And in response, God does what? God raises the dead. But one thing you will see about Jesus in the Gospels is that when Jesus raises the dead, he does so on his own what? Authority. Jesus doesn't come and appeal to God to hear his prayer in order to raise the dead. Instead, when Jesus comes in John 11, verse chapter 11, and raises Lazarus from the dead... He does say, Father, I know you hear me and and you hear all things. But then out of his own voice and his own authority, he does what? He says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. And when he heals the ruler's daughter, in Matthew 9, he doesn't go and pray and say, God, please raise this ruler's daughter from the dead. No, instead, Jesus raises the daughter from the dead on his own authority. He raises a widow's son on his own authority in Luke 7. 
In no instance does Jesus need to appeal to God to act in order to raise the dead because he does it on his own authority. This is what Jesus is saying here. He not only raises physically people from the dead, but he does it spiritually. He gives eternal life to those to whom he chooses to give it. And on the last day, he will raise up physically those who are alive spiritually in him on the last day. And so Jesus says of himself here in John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Jesus is the life giver. Not only does he give life to whom he pleases, but he also has the authority to pronounce judgment over people. Jesus' authority to grant life to whomever he chooses is consistent with his authority to judge all men on the last day. Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Just like giving life was God's prerogative in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God was always presented as the judge. Genesis 18.25 says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. Consistently in the Psalms, God is called the judge of all the earth. God is the judge of all people. Psalm 82, Psalm 94, Psalm 96, and you could go on. But here, because the will of the Father and of the Son are in perfect harmony, all judgment can be given to Christ in the assurance that his judgment will be, in fact, the very same as the Father's judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-8. It's been, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 31, there is a day fixed on which Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. God, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ is the one who will judge, because Christ is God incarnate. And so finally, verse 23 The goal of all of this, Jesus says, the purpose in entrusting all God's works and judgments to Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Think about that for a second, too. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Isaiah 48, 11, for my sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you see? Jesus says, Jesus says, all of this is done, and he is doing all that he is doing, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Just as they honor the Father. Jesus says all of this is true of him so that you may honor the Son just as you honor 
the Father, that you may give glory to Jesus just as you give glory to the Father. All of this, and we'll close with this, all of this ought to cause us to remember this, that the name of God, if you use the term God, and you talk about worshiping God, to say that you follow God and that you are a religious person before God and to separate that use of the name of God and separate it from Christ means that you are worshiping a God of your own vain imagination. You cannot separate Christ Jesus from God. You cannot approach God truly in worship. Your worship cannot be approved and will not be approved by the true God if it is not offered through Jesus Christ alone. Do you understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying that you cannot come to God except through me. Christ has been manifested in the flesh. He's been appointed to be king over us. The whole world must bend the knee to him in order to obey God. The Father has made Jesus to sit at his right hand, and whoever forms a view of God without Christ takes away the fullness of God. This is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, presenting himself equal with God in every way, in his work, in his love, in his giving of life, in his judgments, in his honor. Jesus says in verse 24, to those listening and to you and I this morning, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you sitting here and me this morning. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Beloved, this is a deep passage. It's a deep truth. I struggled going through it, trying to understand all of the details that Christ is presenting before us, and I've done my best to try to communicate that to you. It took a while, I know, But Christ's message is very simple. Hear his word. Hearing the word of Christ is the way and manner of honoring God. You cannot honor God through your outward performance of keeping laws. You cannot in any way obey all these kinds of ceremonies and do all these religious things and honor God. Christ demands from us no other honor than to do what? To obey his gospel, to hear his word, and to believe in him. John Calvin says of this verse, hence it follows that all the honor which hypocrites bestow on Christ is but the kiss of Judas by which he betrayed the Lord. Though they may a hundred times call him king, yet they deprive him of his kingdom and of all power when they do not exercise faith in the gospel. Let us consider 
that this gospel that Jesus offers to you and I this morning through faith in him is a gospel, the fruit of which Jesus says is eternal life. And I exhort you this morning, if you have not come to faith in Christ and repented of your sin and trusted in him alone for your salvation, Christ calls you now to come to him. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of glory. He says, believe in him and you will be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and for this gospel that you have given to us, the gospel regarding your son. Lord Jesus, you have revealed yourself to us in your word and you have made yourself known over and over again in so many different ways. And, and in these words that you have presented to us through the writing of John, we see that you have presented and said of yourself that you are indeed equal with God in every way. We can't even begin to delve into the mysteries of that, Lord Jesus. But you have made it clear that if we are to come to God and to be reconciled to our creator, to be reconciled to you, that it must be through you and you alone. For you are the only one who has lived a perfect life and obeyed God's law perfectly. You are the one mediator given between God and man so that if we are to come into God's presence, it must be through you, very God of very God. Help us not to take that truth lightly, O Lord Jesus. Help us not to bring you down to our own level. Help us not to take you down from your throne of grace and make you just like us, for you are not. For you are perfectly holy and righteous and good and kind in every way. You are almighty and you heal and you raise the dead and you give life to those whom you choose. And you have been showing mercy to your creation from the day that you created it until even after the fall by causing rain to rain on the just and the unjust alike by showing and doing works of mercy and you have demonstrated even here in this gospel that healing this invalid of 38 years was a work that you had been doing from the beginning. And you have done it so that we might see your goodness and kindness and come to you in repentance. And so we do that this morning, O oh God. We repent of our wickedness, of our sin, of our rebellion. We confess that we are sinners before you and we come and seek your face of mercy and grace, Lord Jesus. We thank you for shedding your blood and making atonement for our sins, for washing us and making us white as snow. Help us, Lord, to remember you and to live for your glory. We pray this in your most holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.